Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Butty, Washington. Today is Tuesday, September 27, and here are some of the stories we are covering. Malawi's President Lastro Chakwera responds to critics of his one-year-old administration. The Constitution is clear. People have a right uh, to voice out whatever they feel like voicing out. It has to be done within the constitutional parameters. Kenya's President William Ruto approves food assistance to drought-stricken areas of his country. Somalia's military makes gains in large-scale offensive against Al-Shabaab. Cameroon separatists say splinter groups killed and abduct fighters. A long-awaited alleged massacre trial gets underway tomorrow Wednesday in Guinea-Kunakri. The opening of this trial is really an extraordinary moment. The victims have been seeking and campaigning for justice for more than a dozen years. And Lagos, Nigeria, observes car-free day to promote clean air. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Malawi's president, Lashro Chakwera, has been responding to critics of his one-year-old administration. On fighting corruption, he says his administration believes in the rule of law and that no one, including his political opponents, is above the law. President Chakwera spoke with VOS Peter Clotty on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. He tells Peter that those criticizing his economic policies, including civil society, have the right to do so, but within the constitutional parameters of Malawi. This is, um, uh, from their vantage point, uh, perhaps a valid point. But you have to understand that we are building institutions. And we are building such institutions that will be able to operate independently and operate according to their mandate and able to deliver services. And when you have pretty much found a broken system and those that have been benefiting from the same will resist any and every type of change you want to bring forward. But the Constitution is clear. People have a right uh, to voice out whatever they feel like voicing out and even assemble and demonstrate. It has to be done within the constitutional parameters that are given, and I let them do that, express that. There are those that uh, then I would invite uh, to say, can we talk about this, can we talk about this? And people that are able to engage with me or I'm able to engage with them, the CSOs and others, and there are many groups, not mm -hmm. just those. People understand where we're coming from, where we are, and where we're headed. And um, I can tell you that those that are willing for us to engage, we are able then to be on the same page mm. and then proceed on, because it's for the sake of the country. And if you want to go on a productive path and you want to spend all your time on the street demonstrating, you are not going to have that bring food on the table. So, Mr. President, talk to me about the fight against corruption because you promised to weed out corruption in Malawi because you saw as an opposition leader that things were not going right. So, Mr. President, specifically what steps are you taking to weed out corruption? Because some of them are saying you are too slow. Well, you know, again, when you're dealing with 
processes and issues that have to do with the law. My role has been, let us fund governance institutions. And for example, the Anti-Corruption Bureau has been funded under this administration the most, unlike any other administration. We have recruited people to work with, within that organization more than ever before. We have given that organization liberty, and most recently, we even said they don't need to have anyone's okay to prosecute matters so they can you know, facilitate whatever they need to do uh, the best way they see it. And we even have uh, established, uh, through Parliament, a, a crimes court, a, a, you know, a financial crimes court, and they are setting everything in place so that everything can be expedited. Malawi's president, Lastro Chakwera, speaking with my colleague Peter Clotty on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. Kenya's president yesterday, Monday, approved food relief to drought-stricken areas. Speaking at the State House in Nairobi, Ruto said there is an urgent need for measures to mitigate drought. He also said he hopes that this will be the last time that the country offers food relief to affected areas. More than 300 million people are in need of food assistance in Kenya. Maureen Ojiambo reports. Leaders from the drought-affected regions in Kenya have called on President William Ruto to declare the ongoing emergency a national disaster. The leaders say half of the population in the counties is affected. On Monday, the government sent thousands of bags of dry foods and related items to ease effects of drought in northern Kenya's counties. Speaking in Nairobi, Ruto said that the situation is dire. For the last four years, we have had failure of rain in many parts of Kenya. And that is what has exacerbated this situation. And hopefully we should be able to be better prepared as we go into the future. I want to thank all the stakeholders in not just making sure that we have additional resources for food, but also working together with our development partners in making sure that this food gets to the right beneficiaries and there are no duplications. More than 3 million Kenyans are severely affected by drought, which has hit at least 23 counties. The government will be assessing the situation on a weekly basis to ascertain the impact of the intervention. Ruto says he will meet development partners tomorrow Wednesday to streamline food relief operations, providing supplies to the affected regions. It is my hope that this will be among the last times we are doing this kind of ceremony where Kenyans are facing starvation and hunger, and we have to do this. I think it is possible for us, going into the future, to have a much more proactive approach to situations like this so that we manage them ahead of time and avoid situations of a crisis like the one we are in. According to the county bosses, the number of people in need of humanitarian assistance in their respective counties is increasing at a high rate. Council of Governor Chairperson Anwai Guru says that climatic change affecting arid and semi-arid areas has negatively affected livelihoods in local communities. She says counties are facing challenges in mobilizing local resources to address the drought. Given the immense nature of the interventions that are necessary to save our lives of our people and those of the livestock, we further 
would like to request the national government through NDMA to fast track the process of actualizing the drought emergency fund as well as immediately release the equitable share of revenue due to counties to scale up the humanitarian assistance to the household experiencing severe droughts. More than 900,000 children below the age of five are malnourished with regions experiencing acute food and water shortages, malnutrition, limited pasture and reduced livestock prices. Education sector has been hit hard. This week, Kenya's Deputy President Rigadi Gashagwa is expected to chair a meeting with stakeholders to address drought intervention measures in the country. Reporting for VOS Daybreak Africa, Ayamorino Jumbo in Nairobi, Kenya. Somalia state media on Monday said the military has pushed al-Shabaab terrorists out of large parts of the country's central area in the latest gains in large-scale offensive. Mohammed Sheikh Noor reports from Mogadishu. An offensive by the Somali tribal militia packed by the Somali government was launched in the Hiran region a few weeks ago against al-Shabaab militants, liberating several key townships before moving on to Gilgadud and then the Bay region in the south. There has been significant progress in the liberation of 40 settlements in the Hiran region alone. With the support of the Somali government's military commandos trained by the United States. However, the actual fight is taken up by the clan-based state-supported independent Mawisle militia as part of the popular uprising against militants. Local militia members formally linked to the Southwest Administration of Somalia captured four settlements on the outskirts of Baidawa in the Bay region from militants with the support of the Somali National Army Forces Monday proving that the uprising against the group has now expanded to the south. State-run media reported Monday that Busley, Bulajadid, Matani and Usley were among the newly liberated villages. In an appearance on a talk show hosted by local TV station Sunday, Ahmed Ma'alim Fiqi, the interior minister of the Somalia government, said the Somali army and local militia tribes had defeated militants in central Somalia after liberating much of the Hiran and Gilgadut regions. He noted that 40 settlements in Hiran and six more in Gilgadut had been liberated in less than three weeks, deeming this work commendable. Our forces seized territory from militants, which stretches over 40 settlements, including villages. Places where fewer people live and others where more people live. These 40 settlements are located only in the Hiran region and a new operation has been launched in the Gilgadud region to liberate more territories. And you can imagine what happened yesterday and today when militants fled their dead comrades and ammunition. And so far six villages have been liberated and this only started yesterday. VOA has not independently verified the Somali government claims. The Somali military gains come just one day after Al-Qaeda linked militants attacked a training camp, killing one soldier and wounding six others. The Somali government's campaign to regain control of the country comes at a time when the country is experiencing a raging drought, which UN officials warn will lead to farming within months. Hamish Shagnour, 
for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Butter in Washington. Today is Tuesday, September 27. The long-awaited trial of alleged perpetrators of Guinea's so-called September 28, 2009 massacre begins tomorrow, Wednesday. On that day, Guinean security forces fired on opposition protesters in a stadium, killing more than 150 people. They were protesting Captain Musa Dadis Kamara's intention to run for president. Kamara has seized power in December 2008. Coincidentally, the trial comes as Guinea again finds itself under yet another military government with new uncertainty about when the country will return to democratic rule. Elise Kepler is Associate Director of the International Justice Program at the U.S.-based Human Rights Watch. I caught up with her at Kunakri International Airport, where she had just arrived late Monday night. She tells me that families of the victims have been demanding justice and reparations for more than 13 years. The opening of this trial is really an extraordinary moment. The victims have been seeking and campaigning for justice for more than a dozen years. And it is a huge step forward for judicial proceedings to open. The 11 accused are expected to be there, including the former president at the time of the massacre, Musa Dadis Kamara, who came in from Burkina Faso. This is really such an important step for justice in Guinea and for the victims who've been seeking to see perpetrators held to account. What do you have to say about current military leader Maman Di Dumuya. I think he has made this trial possible. What do you have to say about that? Uh, Well, you know, it's definitely the case that he has indicated um, that this was a priority. He was committed to seeing this trial go forward. It's also the situation that human rights abuses have escalated under his authority and during this government. There has been a ban on public protests and also a ban on the opposition. These are serious concerns. Our hope is that this trial will be accompanied not only by uh, the opening, but also credible proceedings, genuine proceedings, and that it will also be accompanied by wider rights reform to ensure that rights are respected in this country and that there will be democratic rule. So, Elise, you say that the families of the victims want justice or they have been waiting for justice. What would justice look like in this case? Well, I think it starts from the perspective of uh, serious investigation, and there was a multi-year judicial investigation done, and now credible trials. So that this is not just some kind of window dressing or, you know, kind of not serious proceeding, but a very detailed look by the judges and assessment by the judges about the evidence presented to determine the guilt or innocence of these 11 accused. And it's worth pointing out, not only is Musa Dadis Kamara one of the accused, but there are also several other former high-ranking government officials, including figures like T.A. Borough and uh, Claude P.V., So I think there's a 
strong desire to see those accused in the courtroom. I think that was in some question, but there are increasing hopes that that will be the case, especially with um, Zadis' return, and for victims to be able to participate, for the evidence to be presented, and then judgment to be issued. Um, the victims are also seeking reparations as part of their participation in this. And reparations can be financial, they can be individual, they can be collective, they can include medical assistance. But I think it's important to recall that this is really the first time in the history of Guinea that there will be a trial involving human rights abuses of this magnitude. Elise, thank you so much again. We will be checking in with you during the course of the trial. Thank you very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Take good care. Elise Kepler is Associate Director of the International Justice Program at the U.S.-based Human Rights Watch. She was speaking with us from Quinacri International Airport in Guinea. Nigeria's economic hub, Lagos, is the most congested city in Africa and has some of its worst air pollution. To highlight the problems, Lagos authorities on Sunday held their first car-free day, asking drivers to instead walk or ride a bicycle. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. Cyclist Demeji Olawale pulled out his electric-powered bicycle early Sunday morning to join colleagues in the Lagos State Capital, Ikeja, the venue for the state's first car-free day. The initiative is jointly organized by Lagos State authorities and local non-profit groups promoting cleaner air. Roads were blocked to prevent vehicle movements while participants jogged walked and cycled freely. During the event, Lagos State authorities pledged to make it an annual commemoration. Authorities said it's part of an already ongoing effort to encourage more non-motorized transportation in the state. Olawali says cycling was his way of encouraging the initiative. We promote e-bikes and we encourage and support our communities to go entirely carbon-free. Everyone can work together in our bid to fight climate change. Lagos State is rated as the most congested city in Africa and is among the worst globally, according to the traffic index by the website Numbil. Lagos is commonly known for the large numbers of yellow-colored vehicles swarming narrow roads. While Car-Free Day was held mostly in Ikeja, it was not observed elsewhere in the state. But organizers like Dennis Kangi, an official from the African Cycling Foundation, say that will change soon. For a city like Lagos, vehicular transport is not a sustainable way of moving people. And with the implementation and awareness about non-motorized transport policy, more people can become aware that you don't always have to drive. Driving has other effects like carbon emission, um, obesity, can affect the environment, can affect our health. Lagos State resident, Chidima Wanekezie participated in the event. It's not a situation whereby the road is just for people who have cars, but we're able to share the road with other people who do not have cars, bikers, cyclists, and even people who use the pedestrian walkway. Between 1990 and 2019, the impact of greenhouse gases on the atmosphere in Nigeria has increased by more than 270%, according to the International Energy Association. Nigerian authorities said last week that more than 300 people died from flooding and 100,000 have been displaced this year. Lagos State is among the states affected. For now, authorities say they will be working to modify other modes of transportation and will encourage citizens to commit 
to cleaner and sustainable urban transport. Timothy Obizu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Cameroon's English-speaking separatists have for the first time acknowledged deadly clashes between splinter rebel groups. One separatist group said Sunday it attacked another that had abducted civilians and set the captives free. Moki Edwin Kizika looks at the significance of the rivalry on the prospects for peace in this report from Yaoundé. In a video circulated Saturday on social media platforms, Cameroon's English-speaking fighters say they have freed several civilians abducted by rebels. The fighters presented two people who said in the video they are separatist commanders and their weapons were seized by a rival English-speaking separatist group called the Marines. A separatist group called the Buffaloes shared another video that they said was taken in Bali, an English-speaking northwestern district, in which they claimed to have attacked another rebel group created by a self-proclaimed rebel general known as Big Number. They said Big Number fighters abducted a man and was asking for ransom. The Buffaloes that shared the video in which they claim big number sent fighters to harass civilians, said the abductions, killings, maiming, raping, and torture of civilians have increased by the day. The Buffaloes said separatists cannot claim they are protecting civilians from the brutality of Cameroon's government troops, yet fighters are committing gross human rights violations. Both the Cameroon government and separatist leaders have confirmed that the videos are those of rival separatist groups in Cameroon's English-speaking Western regions. The separatist groups on social media platforms are also calling for the immediate release of all abductees, including five Catholic priests, a nun, and two worshippers kidnapped this month from a church on the border with Nigeria. The Catholic Church in Cameroon says the gunmen asked for a $100,000 ransom. The splinter groups say they no longer support school closures imposed by separatists. Capo Daniel is deputy defense chief of the Ambazona Defense Forces, one of the main separatist groups in Cameroon's English-speaking Western regions. He says rivalry among fighters has greatly weakened the separatist struggle to create Ambazonia, the name they want to give their breakaway state. The infighting between Ambazonian fighters have been a drawback in our liberation struggle. It has reduced enthusiasm from our citizens. We have seen tribalist group interfering with the movement of forces of nationalist groups. Daniel says money that civilians contributed to support separatists has dropped drastically but did not give figures. He said there is growing distrust of fighters in English-speaking regions. Activist Edward Four, a member of a coalition of civil society organizations in Cameroon, says civilians think the fight for independence of Cameroon's English-speaking regions from the French majority is losing purpose and is plunging civilians 
into more suffering. Citizens are fed up because it looks like it has become a money-making organization with abductions and asking for money. And uh, stealing to us come inside because we have roadblocks, unnecessary roadblocks, and they collect money from passengers in vehicles like church orphans. So I think these rival groups that are coming up now are actually like telling the people, we do the right thing. We're going to defend you. Mfor says his association is a neutral observer advocating for the crisis to end so that people who have been and are suffering can return to their towns and villages. Rights groups have always accused both Cameroon's military and Anglophone separatists of killing civilians and torching their homes in the conflict that started five years ago. Both sides reject the accusations. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. And that's it for this Tuesday, September 27th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for joining us this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barty in Washington, wishing that you will have a 